0: Welcome to Frankly Speaking. This is a new podcast on responsible business by Frank Bold, the European public interest law firm. I'm Richard Howitt, and after several years of debating responsible business issues inside the European Parliament, I'm hosting our discussions on the latest political, legal, and business developments in the field of corporate sustainability, business, and human rights. We speak frankly and personally about what moves policymakers, business and activists to make responsible business the norm. Today, frankly speaking, welcomes Chloe Cranston, one of the leading advocates on issues of responsible business, climate change, modern slavery, migration and trafficking for the non-governmental organization Anti-Slavery International. She, And they have led efforts to address the one million, mostly Muslim Uyghur population, who human rights groups and journalists report have been imprisoned in so-called re-education camps in China's northwestern region of Xinjiang. We'll be discussing what business and policymakers can do to stop the product of forced labor in the camps finding its way into the goods and services which we all buy and use. Chloe, good day and welcome to Frankly Speaking.
1: Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me.
0: You're very welcome. Now, now, firstly, before we get on to, to China, Anti-Slavery International, it was actually founded in 1839, exactly 180 years ago by abolitionists. And I think many people uh, who will be listening see slavery as an issue of the past, not of today. So can we just start off with you explaining why you use the term modern slavery and what exactly is the scale of the problem?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And as Anti-Slavery International, we are very proud of our history and so The organisation did start off working on the transatlantic slave trade and the um, historical forms of slavery and you know we've worked through these 180 plus years now and we now focus on contemporary forms of slavery or what is known often as modern slavery. Modern slavery is essentially an umbrella term to encompass all the different forms of contemporary slavery you get today and that includes human trafficking, forced marriage, commercial sexual exploitation, Forced labor in private sector, domestic servitude, so forced labor in domestic work and so on. So it's an umbrella term, but I think the key thing to understand is what one in slavery is about is when somebody loses their freedom, is exploited by others for commercial or personal gain. And it often happens to the most vulnerable people in society. And these are people who fall into vulnerable situations. It could be me or you. For example, we lose our jobs, we fall into debt, we're looking for opportunities to provide for our families and we end up being tricked and exploited into conditions we did not agree to and we cannot leave. It can happen to anybody. The current estimates, which were recently um, published by the International Labour Organization, IOM and Walk Free Foundation, estimate that up to 50 million people worldwide at any day could be in um, modern slavery. And that includes forced marriage and forced labour. It's a huge amount of people. I want to give a comparison, given we have a bit of an EU audience here. That's more than the population of Spain in modern slavery at any time.
0: And I think the use of the word slavery, we often talk about forced labour, bonded labour, but the word slavery really does concentrate the mind. Uh, Can we take that into Xinjiang uh, and what's happening there? This September the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights reported that the internment of Uyghurs included torture, forced sterilisation, and she said it represented crimes against humanity. What is the aspect of this problem which is particularly about forced labor and slavery?
1: Yeah. Um, So the situation in the Uyghur region—it's hard to even give it the right wording. I would say some people talk about human rights crisis. I think the word crisis isn't enough. We're talking about something defined as crimes against humanity by legal experts and governments as genocide. It's really—it's beyond human rights crisis. Um, What? Where the forced labour comes in, so we have this wide system of persecution that, as you said, includes arbitrary detention, forced sterilisation, separate, forced separation of families, and forced labour is part of the system of control. The forced labour system, I won't go into the details on this po- podcast because it's quite multifaceted, it's multi-layered. Some people understand it as being forced labour solely of people detained in the internment camps. That's not the case, it's not only that, it's also in the Chinese government's so-called poverty alleviation scheme, it's also about the forced labour, uh, forced transfer of Uyghurs and other Turkic and Muslim majority peoples, such as Kazakh and Kyrgyz and others, transferred from the region to elsewhere in China, it's also in the formal prison system and that's where cotton really comes into play and it's also about companies accepting subsidies to accept forced Uyghur laborers in facilities in the Uyghur region and to set up facilities and so on there. So there's many layers to it. And because of all the layers, we actually don't even know the number of people in forced labour in the Uyghur region, but the scale of it and the extent of surveillance, the extent of persecution, the fact that, for example, auditors have tried to audit in the region and been intimidated themselves, cannot get information out. It means that we have to presume that any product made in the region, and that's whether it's made in a factory or a farm, Could be made with forced labor and is made with forced labor. We have no other way of proving otherwise. And I think one thing that's maybe just worth pointing out for the listeners is this is really quite a unique situation for anti-slavery international. There are some other global comparisons we have, but compared to other forced labor that we've worked on, which is about economic gain, this is forced labor as part of a wider system of ethnic and religious persecution. The economic gain is somewhat secondary. This is as has been said by the UN Human Rights Chief, by the UN, crimes against humanity and by others saying it's genocide and forced labour is part of that but it's not even the ultimate goal and that makes us a really complex area to try and work around.
0: Indeed and um, I think all our listeners will be thinking how terrible but I can't do anything about it but the the aspects that we're we're going to be talking about today about supply chain mean that very common goods like gloves, like hair products, textiles, thread, and you already mentioned, uh, tomato products are all on the shelves of our shops and have this link to force forced, forced labour in Xinjiang. One further example that Anti-Slavery International has has produced this year that really raised my eyebrows, was about solar panels. So here we are thinking that uh, the shift to renewable energy is everything that we ever wanted and you know wanting to back it, and then finding out that deep human rights violations might be involved in the, the supply. Tell us more about what you found in relation to that.
1: So that's research that's been established by sheffield Hallam University. Um, and it's, it's horrifying. Yes, you know, there's absolutely no argument that we need to back the solar industry. We need to see the solar industry grow. It's absolutely urgent for the world's future, just as with other renewables. And that is absolutely not under debate. But critically, we cannot say to, you know, children and people who are going to be around in decades' time that that was reliant on crimes against humanity and genocide. And actually, So the situation is actually just to give um, a broad view of it, it's up to 97% of the world's solar panels may be implicated by Uyghur forced labour. And it's somewhat complex, but it's basically because the, the Uyghur region has been set up to be a key manufacturing hub of one of the key materials that is used globally for the solar industry called polysilicon. And at each layer of the solar industry, so how the polysilicon comes from something called metallurgical grade silicon, which comes from quartz, we know that weaker forced labor is potentially at each of these layers. So again, it's very kind of multi-layered how it's getting into the solar in, solar industry. But overall, when you add it all together, it's almost it's over 95% of the world's solar industry could be tainted. So what we need to happen then, it's urgently for the solar industry industry to find and redirect their sourcing, to source from elsewhere, and crucially for governments, financial institutions, international institutions, to put funding and support into developing those alternative sources so that the world has a genuinely clean, and I mean clean socially and environmentally, source of products for the solar industry.
0: And, and what's actually... Sh- is that happening?
1: I wouldn't say enough. Um, So the US government has done quite a fair amount of this. And there are companies, for example, in the US, South Korea, Germany, that due to greater attention on the Uyghur region, are um, being able to build up their own commercial offer for the solar industry. What has happened um, in short over recent years is the prices were dumped so much In China, that the the rest of the world's industry became just simply not competitive. It lost its competitiveness compared to the Uyghur region's industry. But now that you do have this attention, and particularly the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which I think we'll probably get to in the US, which is targeting including solar panels, that has pushing that attention. But I would be saying, as you know, a, an NGO here, a call out to investors, to governments, the German government, the UK government, you know, key governments in COP and key governments in the G7 and G20 to be really focusing attention on that, particularly when there's discussions about. Um, diversing, uh, uh, diversifying, um, energy sources, reducing reliance on Russia, and think about the support that needs to be found to be found for this alternative supply. And it's not just solar, I want to say it's also electric vehicles. It's also wind turbines for weaker force labour. We're not only just talking about solar. So it needs to be a matter of global importance. And it's not about slowing down the urgent transition to clean energy. It's about making that genuinely clean.
0: Yes, and aspects of that answer aimed at investors particularly relevant to our audience. And we'll be putting that question to them in when they're on, as our guests, frankly speaking, in weeks and months to come. I want to ask you about a different example, if I may now, chloe because on in in the debates generally about responsible business conduct and on our our podcast we often share these horrific and shocking stories of human rights abuse, and people feel that we can't make progress and yet in the in the um field of forced labor. There's a good news story, or at least a a relatively good news story in relation to uh, deep worries uh, a decade and more ago that existed about forced labour in Uzbekistan. Uh, So let's, let's learn from that. Tell us what happened next.
1: It was a global movement and particularly led by extremely brave human rights activists in and from Uzbekistan who absolutely deserve a huge amount of the credit here for what happened. Um, So the the situation was that up to 1 million people in Uzbekistan, including children, were forced to the fields every single year for the cotton harvest. So taken out of schools, uh, teachers, doctors and civil servants taken out of their jobs in order to pick cotton. Um, And so that's what you call state-imposed forced labour. So where forced labour is actually orchestrated by the government and it's a top-down system. Um, and so for since the mid 2000s, a campaign began for that and it, it formed a coalition called the Cotton Campaign, which brought together Uzbek groups, uh, human rights groups, labor groups, trade unions, and critically actually also industry associations and investor groups were part of this campaign. I won't go into the depth of what happened, but there was various tactics, including a global boycott of Uzbek cotton, where over 300 companies committed to not knowingly sourcing um, Uzbek cotton, uh, pressuring around the World Bank, around the International Labour Organization, uh, the US government traffic. In person reports. And then fast forward to the late 2010s, there was a presidential change. In Uzbekistan, a reform process began, and critically at that time, the Uzbek government began to be first recognised that there was state-imposed forced labour in cotton. That was crucial, that recognition. There's a comparable system in Turkmenistan, and the Turkmen government still fails to even acknowledge that system is in place. Uzbekistan recognised it. They became willing to actually engage with the cotton campaign. In a truly historic moment, members of the cotton campaign, campaign went to Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, including Uzbeks who had been in exile, managed to re-enter their own country. And so last year's harvest, which was um, so around September 2021, the Uzbek monitors found that systemic state-imposed forced labour had ended. And this was a really historic moment. And it was announced earlier this year, and the boycott of Uzbek cotton was lifted. And so we did see the end to systemic practice. However, there are always caveats. We can't just say yay and then forget about it and then just start looking elsewhere. And We particularly need to see companies commit to responsible sourcing from the country and to use their leverage to make sure that trade unions and labor monitors are part of the monitoring system. So there, we do still need to see that enabling environment, but it truly is very, very historic
0: now you also talked earlier about the the u s legislation which allows import controls where there are fears of um uh, an evidence of forced labor uh so often in these debates people say oh Europe's ahead of America on responsible business issues and this is one that can be argued that the u s is ahead uh of the European Union and yet this year we're seeing the Proposal for an EU instrument to tackle forced labour, similar to the the US forced labour law on Uyghurs. Um, uh, do you see this as a breakthrough moment in Europe, and what's the significance of this proposal? Uh, and is it going to get agreed?
1: It's certainly a breakthrough moment. I think the EU is a very fast-moving space right now. We have the corporate sustainability reporting directive, which I expect you've spoken about on other podcasts. We have the corporate sustainability due diligence directive, and now we have the forced labor regulation. As anti-slavery, um, I think it's key for us to point out that we think all these pieces are important. We don't believe there's a silver bullet on forced labour. So introducing import controls alone, in our views, wouldn't have been sufficient. We want to see all these multiple approaches being taken. So it's really welcome to see the EU kind of taking that approach and also potentially looking at other trade policies. So the EU proposal, um yes, we think it's going to be passed. It's been an incredibly quick process in the EU, completely Particularly uh, compared to the due diligence proposal. So, um, President von der Leyen announced that in September last year in her State of Union address. And then, within a year, on the year anniversary of that announcement, the Commission's put forward its proposal. It is a little bit different to the US um, proposal in that the US proposal is really solely about imports coming into the US, whereas the EU proposal is to cover both domestic products and imported products, and that's actually also partly to be in compliance with World Trade Organization rules. We think it's a really powerful proposal and it works in parallel and complementary to the due diligence piece. So where, for example, workers are urgently needing remedies, the power of import controls can be to drive that remedy to workers. We've seen that in the US where an import ban was introduced on facilities producing PPE in Malaysia during COVID. And because of that import ban coming in, the company, which is told called Top Glove, suddenly expediated its process to get remedy to workers. And that then, that kind of fret of that, then triggered its competitors in Malaysia, so other big PPE providers, to also get remedy to workers. And that's really powerful, in particular compared to the due diligence pr- proposal, where access to justice is absolutely fundamental but can take many years for EU courts and we need to see something that drives urgent remedy, particularly when you're talking about people who've had their entire freedom taken away from them. The other piece that I would say import bans are so crucial and really powerful and a very powerful addition to due diligence is state imposed forced labor. So banning all cotton from the, from Turkmenistan, anything made of cotton from Turkmenistan and banning products from the Uyghur region as well. And that's both to end corporate profiteering from state imposed forced labor and to push companies to really, really do everything they can to remove that from supply chains and to put pressure on the perpetu- perpetrating governments to end those practices, like what we saw happening in Uzbekistan.
0: Can I just press you, though, on the business role in relation to that? Because I think some of our listeners will sort of secretly breathe a sigh of relief and think, oh, well, this takes it back out of our remit, and it's up to governments now to act, and it's not our responsibility anymore. So what's the the responsibility of business within the new proposal, but also how does that relate to what businesses are understanding they need to uh, uh, do in relation to due diligence themselves within their own supply chains? Can you can you look at it from the business point of view and 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 advise them on how they should respond?
1: So, import bans are essentially more targeted. So in a due diligence law, companies, it's their responsibility to identify the risks, the impacts in their value chains and to take steps in line with the UNGPs, the OECD uh, guidelines to prevent, mitigate and remedy that. And that falls under company law, obviously. Import bans then come in targeted. We could see an import ban on a particular PPE factory in Malaysia. We could see an import ban on a group of EU importers. It could be a ban on all cotton from Turkmenistan. And what then happens is the onus is on the company to prove that product was not made with forced labor. Either they have to prove that that product is not in its supply chain linked. So for example, if you have a t-shirt for them to prove that t-shirt does not have cotton from the Uyghur region in it, or it's about them proving that remediation has happened on the ground. And it's about them working with, CS, with NGOs, with trade unions and so on to prove that. So the onus goes on the company to prove there is no forced labour. And in that way, where there are very acute examples of forced labour that have been identified in investigations and an import ban is put on them, this, that is going to incentivize companies to take really meaningful action on them. So the way I kind of see it is it's a more targeted government enforcement tool that in a sense is blunter than the due diligence mechanism and that's why we think it's really important to have both. the due diligence law is somewhat more overarching. And the import bans come in as a targeted measure where company efforts are failing and you need to really push to incentivize meaningful action that gets positive impact for workers. Crucially, it has to be about how to change the situation for the workers.
0: And um, uh, where there is that company role to demonstrate uh, what, what it knows in its supply chain in order to evade import bans, um, uh, And by the way, PPE, personal protective equipment, which is the uh, the plastic aprons and masks that health workers used during the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, I think it should be said that China denies this, that China says that this is anti-terrorism activity uh, that uh, has lodged um, uh, lots of evidence in the UN to try and counter the claims. I think it's fair to report that. But it's also, I think, to our audience important to ask you as someone who has yourself been on the ground and is in close contact with people who, as you say, are risking their lives. We're talking, uh, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, where you've got deep experience, we're we're talking about um, authoritarian regimes where the ability for NGOs to operate, the ability for freedom of expression is so restricted and how is it possible for you for you and your colleagues to do this type of work and and all the related organizations when you yourselves are subject to repression and to 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 threats and to intimidation
1: yeah um no it's a very good question and i think you know uzbekistan is quite a key example here of the difference that happens so 10 years ago Everything that came out, the country was done at enormous risk to people that activists could not enter. And then because of the reform process, you then have the leading activist being able, who was in exile, who would never have been able to enter her own country, now being able to enter. We are still in the situation in many other countries where what we would call we ha- what we ha- Where we have to, as NGOs, take what we would call an outsider approach, i.e. we cannot kind of meaningfully engage on the ground. Key examples are Uyghur region, Turkmenistan. I would also point to some of the Gulf countries. If you look at the World Cup right now, journalists and activists have been detained or intimidated for trying to uh, report on migrant worker exploitation. So this really happens. And then what, so what you need to do is to form solidarity campaigns. You need to be building everybody together. And that includes ideally businesses and the investor community. In order to build solidarity around this, it's very easy for the Chinese government to deny everything that's happening when you can't get into the country. But the survivor testimonies that are coming out and there are survivors all around the world who are under huge intimidation and under risk of if they speak out, what could then happen to their friends and family still in the Uyghur region? So many of those survivors themselves do not feel they can speak out yet. The survivors from the Uyghur region who are speaking out are speaking out with huge um, power and frankly risk of re-traumatization, the fact that they have to continuously speak out. But they're testimonies are so important you also have amazing work of journalists and in the Uyghur region I would say in particular amazing work of academics the the crucial thing to understand with the Uyghur situation is much of this is in Chinese government documents and in the media because it's a system is cut through the so-called poverty alleviation system, through the so-called re-education system. It is now harder to get information, but up until recently, there was huge amounts of government data and so on that academics, experts on China were analyzing to understand how the system works. And that is what the UN Human Rights Chief and the UN Human Rights Office was were analyzing in order to make their conclusions. So it's really about everybody coming together to get that information out and then how to communicate it. So as anti-slavery international, I have to, I can't take credit. We've not been doing the dangerous work Other people have been doing the dangerous work, giving it to us, and then our role is how to get that out, how to communicate that to businesses, to investors, how to get that to be incorporated into laws. And it's people on the ground risking their lives.
0: On the weaker question, are companies speaking out enough? And I say that because originally in this podcast, we wanted a company to come and talk about their efforts, but no company has been willing to do so that we've approached and we approached a few. Uh, I'm disappointed by that myself. Um, What's your response, Chloe, not on that, on just whether someone comes on a podcast, but are companies really willing to speak out and visibly be seen to act on the weaker issue?
1: Yeah, I could give a one-word answer there of no, absolutely not. and. You know, if you're disappointed, imagine the disappointment for the Uyghur community. Um, The lack of transparency by companies on the situation in the Uyghur region and what they're doing about it is one of the greatest frustrations, I think, in our work. And there's a few reasons for that. You know, there is pressure on companies around this issue. But if they do not speak out, they are not showing solidarity with the Uyghur people. And I have to say, you know, where this is, as I said, it's not only human rights crisis, this is about being on the right side of history. That's simply what it is. Which side are they choosing? Are they on the right side of history? And also from a more practical point, I've engaged behind closed doors with many, many companies on weaker forced labor. And there are some companies really doing good stuff on this, putting lots of money, putting lots of resources, putting lots of thinking into how to address this issue. And they're really properly taking it seriously, but they're not speaking out about that. And that means that the good practice is not being understood. And companies which don't understand what to do, particularly small and medium-sized enterprises are not able to access that information. We need to see far more industry collaboration. We need to see solar companies talking to each other about how to practically address this. Fashion companies, we need to see them even sharing information across different types of industries. And that needs to happen, as I said, both from a practical point of view, and then generally for a kind of moral and reputational point of view that long term they need to be on the right side of history and they need to show solidarity of the Uyghurs. If you had a Uyghur on the podcast I can tell you they would be expressing huge anger and frustration at this fact. They feel like the company's silence is completely letting them down and essentially allowing China, the Chinese government I mean, to um, maintain the status quo. If any
0: company listening to this podcast wants to come on and talk about it just get in touch with us Chloe Cranston from Anti-Slavery International an immense thank you for bringing these very important and serious issues to our attention and thank you for taking part in our podcast today sadly we have come to the end of our time but we would like to invite all of our audience to send us your feedback email us on franklyspeaking at frankbold.org and of course, please share this conversation. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking, the Frank Bold Podcast on Responsible Business. Watch out for our next episode and find out more about Frank Bold's responsible companies section on Twitter and in LinkedIn. See you next time. Thank you again to Chloe and to all of you for joining us. And goodbye.